Hi guys, welcome back to The Right Type. In today's episode, I speak with William Hussey, who is the author of Hideous Beauty, which is out now. We talk about the things that inspired his book and also his favourite queer books and much more. I really enjoyed speaking with William and I hope you enjoyed this episode. So, William, just introduce yourself to everyone and tell us about you. Hi, yeah. Um, well, I'm William. I write uh, LGBTQ young adult books for Usborne Publishing. And my uh, first book for them is out end of May, beginning of June time, uh, called Hideous Beauty. And what was the inspiration for writing Hideous Beauty? So, I've been a young adult uh, author for quite a few years and part of that was going into schools and talking to uh, kids doing creative writing workshops doing assemblies and things and I had a vague idea of writing uh, an LGBTQ romance mystery story but I wanted to get the voices in the story uh, really authentic and so what I did was I asked a few schools I went into if I could speak to their LGBTQ plus clubs and so what I did was I started talking to these kids about what their experiences were of modern intolerance and prejudice. And I found out that although uh, the intensity or the uh, underlying uh, prejudice was a bit different from when I was a kid. So when I was at school, if I'd come out as gay, uh, I would have got really severely beaten up or it would have been pretty horrendous. Although they weren't necessarily facing that kind of prejudice what they were facing was a kind of limited acceptance where people would say we accept you as lgbtq but when that acceptance was put to the test then it would be very brittle and would fracture and break apart so i never give kind of uh, i would never tell the stories they told me but to give you a kind of illustration of the kind of thing i heard was say if you had a kid whose uh, dad had grudgingly accepted him as gay when he came out and then the kid put on some makeup or something or went to a pride and had got dressed up for it then that would be too much for the dad and he would then disown the kid the kid would be thrown out of the house so it was really about the hypocrisy behind people saying oh we accept people as lgbtq but when that acceptance is put to the test it just breaks apart and then young people were left in just as vulnerable and dangerous positions as they ever were in the past. So it was really those conversations with LGBTQ students that um, gave the theme of the book. Um, So yeah, that was the inspiration really. Thank you for sharing. And actually, I always say this, um, that I think prejudice, while things seem better, there's laws in place and more protection, I guess, and more uh, charities and whatnot, I still feel like... um, any type of prejudice, whether it be racism or homophobia or queerphobia in general, I think it just evo- like evolves with the time um, and looks yeah. different, but not necessarily isn't necessarily less harmful. So um, yeah, I can see that. And actually, what you were saying about the example, uh, have you watched Sex Education? Yes. I loved yeah. how like um, they explored that with Eric and his dad. Um, Absolutely. How you saw kind of Eric's dad, like his family were aware that he was gay, but they didn't like him being so loud about it and um i thought that they were going down one route of like being like oh people are hip-hop hypocrites but really i think that um it was like a lack of understanding and they kind of resolved that in a really nice way and i think that your book's definitely going to do the same oh thank you i mean it was it kind of like 
was I came out really late to my family because I'm from a uh, traveling fairground background. Uh, so traveling background and there's a lot of kind of conservative opinions within that community and so I and my uncle was gay and he got treated pretty appallingly in like the 60s and 70s and so I was really nervous about and like my friends knew and everything but I was really nervous about coming out to my family and I got quite a good reception in the end but again it was a little bit like um, people were accepting me but only to a certain extent so my mum got ill um, uh, about 15 years ago and I had um, an uncle, like a distant uncle relative, phone me up and say, oh, you know, while your mum's ill, you might want to rein in the gayness a bit. Wow. <laughs> and it was like, uh, it was like someone saying, you know, my mum didn't have a problem with it at all. But this guy thought, oh, you're going to be upsetting your mum when she's vulnerable and not very well if you keep being gay. And you think, this is what I always say as well, is um, coming out for LGBTQ plus people is not like a one-off event. It's all the time, continually having to come out to different audiences and sometimes even the same audience um, because either they just, they say they accept it, but they just don't really, they're not totally accepting it. That's just awful. I'm so sorry you went through that. Oh, thank you. It was... But I do, I don't know whether you kind of like feel the same, but I do think that it's a, such a common experience for um, for people to, you know, and it's so exhausting to constantly have to reintroduce yourself all the time um, in a way that kind of straight, white, middle-class kind of males don't have to. Yeah, I agree. I think that um, when you're not accepted as a norm, it's like this exhausting kind of cycle of having to get people to understand you when they really, really it should be their job to go and look for that information um, and not on the, it shouldn't be on the people who are going through this. Absolutely, yeah. So it's just so sad. And I feel like so many people have that attitude, like they feel like, um, like you're burdening people and that you should kind of do what you want to do, but be quiet about it. And I, I think that in your writing, actually, what I love about your writing is that you're not quiet about it. Like, your writing doesn't really hold back. It reminds me a lot of Adam Severa. I'm sure you've had that a lot. I love Adam Severa so much. He's so good at writing. Me and I think, I think that both you and him do the same thing where you guys don't... You kind of write as if you don't care who's watching. And you also... Um, you're unapologetic. And the people that are quite... Um, they want you to be quiet you kind of it's like your writing's a bit like I'm gonna be loud and I'm gonna say what I want and like um, I'm not gonna hold back and this is what the gay teen experience I want to show you is and if you don't like that then I don't really care and I really love that and I think that that's what teens need they need that um, the ability to see someone kind of not be uncomfortable with talking so openly about these things Oh, thank you. Well, that's a huge compliment. Um, really appreciate uh, that. I think, yeah, I mean, I was talking to a friend of mine the other day about um, how even the most kind of like um, politically uh, strong among us are that we, we, even we let things go just for it to be comfortable. Like my friend was saying the other day about... Um, talking to taxi drivers and stuff and when they just make assumptions about you so you get in the car and you say oh, I'm going to see my partner and they say and they just assume that that's a woman um, 
and in, and a lot of the time you just think I just don't have the energy to correct you let's just go along with that and and there's you know the inner part of you that's fierce and wants to kind of say oh no I'm sorry you may have misunderstood even kind of because as I say it's exhausting even the strongest people uh, even the strongest kind of gay rights activists and stuff I'm sure just let it slide sometimes uh, just because it becomes overwhelming having to do it all the time I agree and also it feels very unsafe because you never know what they're gonna do and you're alone with them they could go somewhere and like do something to you so like it just feels like you can't constantly be switched on you never know if one the person is just gonna make you feel horrible and you don't want to have trauma when you're just trying to go somewhere in a taxi and also you don't know if they're going to do something so it's very scary and i think it's like what you said even the most like proud activist people they definitely don't always um you know speak when there's situations like that just because of safety well i think the other thing in the i wanted to get over in the book is that you know if you love someone then you don't want you want them to be safe all the time that's part of loving someone and yet so many families be, by not accepting their children for who they are then by kind of like a mission place their children in um dangerous situations because what happens then it happened to me was a, a child when they're coming into this uh, sexuality or realizing who they are want to explore who they are and so they go out and they don't tell anyone where they're going or and uh, then obviously that can put them in situations that's dangerous for them um and so by you know by that kind of thing of just not talking about it or not accepting then you're really imperiling kids in exactly the same way they way they lgbtq teens and young people have always been uh you know put in danger by that 100 percent I think that um, families think that by not accepting it or ignoring it, they think that it's going to somehow, I don't know, protect them from themselves, I guess, or protect them from the word queer or whatever. Um, but really, you're just endangering them, especially there's so many people that run away from home and then they end up on the streets. Um, yeah. It's just, it's so sad and it just makes me really, really upset. Well, as you know, you know, a disproportionate number of uh, homeless uh, young people are LGBTQ. Mm-hmm. Disproportionate number uh, uh, have to turn to sex work in order to survive. So, and, you know, those are those dangerous situations. Or, or even just a kid who wants to explore who they are, then placing themselves because no one knows where they are. You know, they haven't given um, parents or friends or loved ones you know, communication details about where they are, uh, are then obvious, very vulnerable prey for, you know, people who want to exploit them. Exactly. I don't think the world is, I think the world is changing somewhat, but I don't think it's changing fast enough. And I worry about teens, but I think that these type of books um, are going to be there for them where people aren't. Yeah, I hope so. That would be a lovely thought. And I was wondering, what is your publication journey? Like, how did you get into writing and... Um, how did you get your book deal with Osborne? Just take us through all of it. So um, I'd always been writing from a very, very early age, but I came, as I say, from a travelling fairground background, very working class background, and we didn't really have authors come into schools when I was a kid. So I always thought, oh, you had to come from a very posh background, um, 
because those were the kind of writers that you saw on TV and stuff, very uh, upper middle class, usually white males, straight white males. And um, uh, so I thought I don't fit that pattern at all. So I clearly can't be a writer. Um, but I always kept writing. And what happened was um, I got to university and I studied law at university and I just kind of fell into doing a, a kind of trainee, becoming a trainee solicitor. And I really hated it. I hated kind of like every moment of it. And I was about six months into my training contract and I went home at lunchtime kind of feeling pretty miserable. And I turned on the TV and there was a little section at the end of the local news about the master's degree in creative writing at Sheffield. And uh, I was currently in Leeds at the time. And I, coincidentally, I had my appraisal in the afternoon. So I went in and the... A senior solicitor there said, oh, I think you're doing quite well. We're going to move you on to corporate law next uh, in the next six months. And I basically said to him, oh, yeah, you know, before you um, go on, I've decided to totally give up on my career that I've been training for you know, for the past four years uh, because I want to be a writer and I'm going to do, and do this postgraduate writing degree. And he was just totally flabbergasted and was like, you know, couldn't believe it. And my family were like really disappointed in me because I put so much work in. So, but I went and did this uh, writing course and I absolutely loved it. And I always say to kids when I go into schools, they always say to me, oh, one of the first questions is, how much money do you earn as a writer? And I'm always quite honest with them. Um, and, but I always say to them, when you're on your deathbed at the end of your life, you will not look back and think to yourself, I wish I'd earned more money. You will always look back and go, I wish I'd done what I'd always wanted to do. Um, and so what I did was on the course, I wrote a horror novel, an adult horror novel, and it was passed on to an agent. So I got an agent through being on this creative writing course. And then kind of to cut a long story short, I um, wrote a couple of middle grade young adult books for Oxford University Press and I had a great time there. And then after about, I think it was my fifth book for Oxford University Press, I, uh, my mum, as I say in the previous question, she got seriously ill. She had lung cancer and uh, lot, she had lots of different complications with her cancer. Eventually she had sepsis and uh, she passed away. And I was her main carer over that period, quite a long period. And so I was writing at the same time, but after she passed away, I was in a really dark place. Um, and I just couldn't, I couldn't bring myself to write for about six months. And then I started going back into schools and I had, as I say, I had this vague idea for Hideous Beauty, started talking to some uh, of these LGBTQ kids in the club, uh, in the clubs. And um, basically, because the story is about grief and overcoming grief as as well as being a mystery and a love story, I think it just all kind of started spilling out of me onto the page. And I, I finished the first draft within about six weeks, which is the quickest I've ever written anything. And, um, and then I redrafted it over the course of a few months and sent it to my agent and... Um, she uh, sent it on to uh, Stephanie King at Osborne, who uh, picked it up. And um, and I think kind of like it, it was a bit of a cathartic book because as Dylan in the story, 
is dealing with his grief for Ellis. I was dealing with my grief for my mum. And there's a little moment in the book where during a funeral scene where Dylan touches Ellis's hand and he says that there's no cold like it. He feels, you know, he's the person he's loved most in the world. He feels that hand and he says there's no cold like it. It's not really emptiness or anything. What it is is um, it's a kind of uh, lost future. It's what could have been and what isn't. And that is an exact um, replica, uh, replicated sensation of when um, I saw my mum in the funeral home and I touched her hand. And that was the thoughts that occurred to me at the time. So a lot of uh, those emotions and real thoughts went into the book. Do you feel like it was therapeutic writing the book? Do you feel like it helped you get over some of the grief? Or I know you never stopped grieving, but do you feel <clears> it helped, like it healed you in some way? Yes, definitely. Um, it kind of like, and also because um, I don't want to kind of paint the book as uh, being this kind of like really traumatic, miserable read, uh, because although it kind of deals with grief, I think there's a lot of hope in it as well. And um, it's really interesting because I, I'm not going to give anything away, but there's, you come to what I think in the book, you think is the final chapter and everything has been resolved. And then at the very end, there's a kind of flashback chapter as the last chapter. And I really thought that was important to put in there because it ends the book on a, on a kind of um, more hopeful, upbeat note. And that was really my experience of writing the book, that this was the kind of epilogue of the grief that I was suffering from my mum, that the book itself was like the epilogue and the kind of uplifting moment and thinking... It was hard and writing the book was hard, uh, but it was therapeutic, definitely. I remember that. I'm not going to give any spoilers, but I thought <laughs> it was so clever. And I feel like it was just so beautifully done. And um, that made me cry, like more than the actual ending being kind of this kind of acceptance and um, moving on and trying to um, heal from what, like what Dylan's been through. I think that having that ending scene was so powerful because it showed that um, I hope it's not a spoiler that like um, books about grief don't have to end in sadness. Absolutely. And it's about that kind of sense that you carry the person forward with you as well. Yeah. Um, that, that, you know, it has a, it's like a wound and it scars over and you always have the scar and it's um, a reminder that it's always there. But it, it becomes, you can live with that scar uh, and it, you know, and some, and I think you actually kind of treasure having it. You wouldn't want to, you wouldn't want to get rid of it because it's part of who you are going forward. Yeah, I I really like that imagery, and um, thank you so much for sharing your publication journey. I think that I always say this on my podcast is getting repetitive, but I always say that I love asking people about um, their journey because everyone's answer is so different, and it shows that anyone can get into the business if they really wanted to Absolutely. and something you said also um two things you said one was about you know um not being rich and uh seeing people that were these like middle class white men white straight men being um pub like published and being authors and not seeing yourself in that i think it's so important to see authors that don't fit that mold so yeah i really love that and also um what you said about 
the deathbed and what you look back on i always think like that i feel like um i've always thought like that since i was young because i've always felt kind of this imaginary pressure to get out of being from like a working class background and try and make myself into someone that was like earning a lot of money and stuff but then i thought to myself i don't want to be i don't know 50 years old and thinking about all the things I could have done and having to regret. Cause I think at any age you can get up and do whatever you like, but I think yes. regret is painful in a different way. And I don't like regret. So um, yeah, I think it's so important to tell kids that because I think there's so many kids, especially with teachers who are amazing, but like um, a lot of teachers do pressure kids to do stuff that are not arty, like arty. Um, yeah. So yeah, it's very important message to tell people. And why are queer books very important to you? Well, um, I think this uh, kind of question might bleed into a later question. But um, when uh, I was young, obviously, I was really nervous about um, either bringing queer books home or having them in my possession because that would be like... Uh, the big reveal, I guess, that would be effectively coming out if they were found, you know, in my school bag or whatever it might be to be. So we, I didn't really have any queer books growing up, apart from one, which I'll, you know, tell you about uh, in a bit. But I think it, this kind of explosion in queer young adult literature uh, at the moment is just, it makes me glad and envious at the same time that, you know, teens have this remarkable world where they can see themselves in books where, you know, I certainly couldn't see myself represented in, you know, the literature that I grew up with. Um, so this is why I think, you know, as you know, you know very well as well, if you don't see yourself in the culture uh, and I mean the culture in the kind of like literary film, TV, music, whatever culture it might be, then your sense of otherness, of being separate from society, of being excluded, um, is always there. And it kind of feeds into that always having to come, <clears throat> always having the sense that you're always having to come out um, kind of process. So as I say, um, I think that is essentially why queer books are absolutely vital. And I don't mean this to sound melodramatic, but are actual lifesavers for people. Um, because if you, I think what we do is I've got a lot, I've grown up um, and lived a lot of my life in kind of like small Northern towns in England. And a lot of my friends who live in London and Manchester, um, LGBTQ friends, there's a sense there that, they become a little bit complacent and think, you know, although there's still prejudice around them, they think, oh, we are accepted now. Well, you go to a small town where I grew up in and I live in now, and you walk through the streets and you're a queer person holding hands with someone you love, you can't guarantee that person's safety. It's not, you know, I, and I think 99% of the country is like that. 99% of the country isn't like, you know, the um, gay villages in major towns. And and that's where most queer kids grow up, in these small towns and in these places that are more conservative. So if they're not seeing themselves represented around them, and then 
it's important that they're represented in books they can pick up in their schools and libraries. Agreed. And actually, um, just so many things you said. Firstly, um, this is why I loved what Stripes did, uh, the publisher, mm-hmm. uh, when they made the Proud book. They gave two, they had two like versions of it. One was like the bright rainbow one and one was just like blank and they can color it in themselves um, so that queer kids could take it home and not worry. But also um, the thing you said about small towns and everything, uh, I had a friend at uni and she, I grew up in London, but she grew up in a small village in the Scottish Highlands. And um, she said being queer there was very, very difficult because she didn't have any local library or anything uh, to go to, to be able to even get a book. Um, her parents are very Christian. And so the TV they watched was like monitored. And um, I don't know, she says that when she finally got her hands, hold on, sorry, the, can you hear the police car? I did, yeah. Let me let that go, okay, it's gone. <laughs> she said um, when she finally got her hands on uh, a queer book, that really did save her life. And I think it's, you know, when you grow up and you think you're other, um it can literally kill you mm-hmm. so yeah i agree so much and also i think queer books give kids language to describe who they are um yes. because i think a lot of people they don't know what like what they're experiencing when there's no language um yeah. i think even juno dawson discussed this at one point saying how um she didn't have the language and when she got the language she then felt kind of happy and safe and um, yeah, I think that it's again making a safe places and the books give people language and the ability to articulate who they are and what they're feeling. I think it's so freeing and when you suddenly, whether it's in a book or a piece of music or theatre or any art form or even when it, if it's just meeting someone and like you for the first time and discussing it, uh, that sense of... Um, discovering that there's some someone with a common experience that you're not by yourself is so overwhelming and I think is a real challenge actually if you were going to write a book like that is a real challenge to describe what that means to a human being um I I think that I think there are certain experiences that you know, we're both writers, but I think there are certain experiences that sometimes move beyond language, the ability of language to set down. Yeah. And I think that's sometimes where music kind of fills a void that writing can't. As much as I, you know, love literature um, of all kinds, it's, there is, you know, there are limits to it. I agree, uh, 100%. And I was wondering if you could have tea with any queer icon who would you choose and why? This is such a difficult question. So because there's, I've got like hundreds of candidates. <laughs> I'm just thinking, um, there's just not enough tea. Uh, <laughs> but um, so I really studied, and um, this is a kind of like such a classic example, but I really studied Oscar Wilde um, at university. And to, I think as well that the experience, the historical experience of being queer is um you know it's not a constant um and it's kind of like i'd love to ask him about what queerness i mean it may even not be a term that he would really understand but what queerness meant in his time and when you read the trials uh, transcripts uh, of him 
trying to explain without putting his head kind of metaphorically in the news um you know what a queer relationship could be like and how fulfilling and wonderful that could be um at his time i mean i think i'd love to sit down and talk to him i'd love to talk to people like uh you know marsha p johnson all those kind of his uh, heroes of stonewall but i i, I kind of came to the conclusion that because it's a personal story it would have to be armistad morpin because when i was at school um and i think we were talking when we were talking earlier about um because if i grew up in this small northern town i didn't necessarily understand what these feelings and emotions uh, meant um i had an english teacher and this was under the shadow of section 28 at the time you know where teachers weren't allowed to, it's awful in inverted commas promote homosexuality and homosexual mm -hmm. lifestyles um so he could only say so much to me but he obviously could see that i was struggling and so what he did was he gave me a copy of tales of the city um and i read it and devoured it and gave it back to him and i do you know it's the kind of like a real regret of mine that i never said thank you to him is he still alive i he may be i should really try and track him down and kind of like say this to him face to face but it's you know it, it, it at least gave me a clue and a beginning step as to understanding who i was um at a time when you know teachers could get in serious trouble for doing something like that so i think it would be armistead morpin to kind of like say to him what his book meant to me uh, as a kid that's just amazing and um a few things like number one living under section eight uh, section uh, 28 i think that would have been i just i mean you lived under it i'm just i've researched it um i'm so glad the witch is dead <laughs> <laughs> yes. um do you remember when she died people were going up and down london shouting and uh, ding dong the witch is dead <laughs> um yeah i think oh that's just that's trauma there. Um, and like the fact that teachers could have gotten in trouble, I didn't know that. Um, I had a teacher called Mr. Daly and he was, an, he's Irish and um, he used to give me books about like Nigerian people. So I had a teacher that also would like give me stuff. And um, I think teachers are so important for that because really good teachers can spot ch like kids that need um, that help and really, really change their lives. So that's just amazing. And I've never read that book, so I'm going to check it out. Yeah, it's um, it's a it's a lovely, you know, it's an. I actually don't want to spoil anything for it. I mean, it's it's slightly of its time, but um, I think it's such a milestone in queer kind of culture as well. So yeah. And uh, the next question is, what tips would you give to young writers on how to write a thriller? So. I think the most important thing with writing a thriller, because you can practice things like uh, uh, pacing, which is obviously really important for thriller stories. But I think the central thing to say is, um, in an early draft of Hideous Beauty, um, I think I can say this, but it's not a spoiler, because it's kind of like in a lot of the reviews and stuff, is we've got these two characters. You've got Dylan and Ellis, and it's the story's told from Dylan's point of view. And Dylan is this klutzy kid who's um, not quite sure of himself. And he falls in love with this amazing 
uh, kid called Ellis, who's um, very confident and very out and proud and wears pearls while he's playing football and is a brilliant artist. And uh, in an early draft of the book, I started with the scene in which there's the car accident. And so this is chapter one. And Ellis um, passes away, dies after the car accident. And that was my big mistake because the really important thing with thriller stories is in order to uh, grip the reader and to make them uh, kind of like horrified or concerned or worried, you they have to invest in the character a bit before awful stuff happens to that character. Otherwise, if they don't have an emotional investment, then the thrills and the uh, emotion just doesn't play through into the story. So that's why I allowed a few chapters before we got to that and so my big tip to young writers would be really think about your characters and invest some time and get uh you, you your reader doesn't have to like your character but they need to have a sim have an understanding a sympathetic understanding to the character um before the plot you know the momentum of the plot kicks in in a thriller that's amazing advice. I actually got the same advice from an agent when I was on, like when I was querying still, and they said that um they really liked the plot and it was very very interesting and like there was a lot of twists and everything, but that there was no emotional investment, and so I had to go back and do a lot of revision. So that's so important. Right. Absolutely, yeah. Because I think especially we we really we all love story, um, but I think kind of like story is essentially about human beings that's what we're really interested in and we love kind of like plot twists and cliffhangers and all that kind of stuff but we're interested in them primarily because we want to see how human beings react uh, to the, you know the perils they're put into exactly um thank you for sharing those tips i'm gonna put them in the show notes so that people can uh see them there clearly and <sighs> What was your process for write, um, for writing Hideous Beauty and your new book that's coming up? Uh, so with Hideous Beauty, um, it was the first time I'd really, as I said, in the circumstances of losing my mum and stuff, where I just thought, I'm, I've got this notion for these two characters. I know that um, Ellis, uh, Dylan's boyfriend, is, is harbouring this very dark secret. Uh, and we're going to find out what the secret is at the end. And we also, I also know that something traumatic is going to happen to um, Ellis and Dylan at the beginning. And it's going to be a love story told in reverse. So we get to have this really heartwarming, lovely um, love story as we go through the book. But I didn't really know much more about it. Um, and so what I usually do with my books is sit down and plot it all out from beginning to end before I start but I didn't do it with this one at all I really wanted it to be character driven so honestly what I did was just shut myself away for that kind of six seven week period and just kind of hammered it out as quickly as I could so that I could kind of invest that energy and emotion into the characters as much as I could and I think that kind of set the template for how I'm going to write these so my idea with Osborne at the moment is to write um, LGBTQ love stories, romances, but maybe put a different genre spin on each one. Okay. So Hideous Beauty, we've got LGBTQ love story and a mystery. 
And the next one is going to be, I don't want to give too much away, but it's out next year and it's a kind of dystopian thriller. And I can kind of give you a little exclusive because it there's a little line. So we've added a page at the end of Hideous Beauty when it comes out in print. And all it says is, what would it be like if you lived in a world where being gay was uh, illegal? So it's a kind of dystopian um, story in which that's the scenario and there's a love story at the centre of it. And so again, I just had that kind of vague notion. Um, I don't want to give too much away about that book, but I thought, and I had two or three main characters and I just thought I'd, um, I'd start again and write it really quickly uh, for a first draft anyway. Um, so yeah, that's, that's how I've been approaching these books. That's so interesting. Um, actually, like you seem like a very heavy plotter. And I think obviously when you write darker books or ones that involve kind of a mystery, um, being a plotter really helps. I feel like um, I have a similar process and I'm so interested in your next book. That sounds really cool. I love dystopia. Well, it's kind of, um, I, it came, I, I'm trying not to say too much about it, but no, I better not say anymore. I, I was going to give you, I'd read this article in the newspaper. I'll tell you when we're, when we're not off okay. <laughs> on the podcast, but uh, maybe I'll tell you next year. Okay. <laughs> okay. So the next question is, what was your favourite character to write and why? Okay, I'm going to slightly cheat on this one because um, it's uh, it's Dylan and Ellis because Dylan is basically me and Ellis is who I'd like to be. So, especially when I was a kid. So Dylan is uh, unconfident, klutzy, loves comic books, is a complete geek, um is a total doofus when it comes to, you know, love and romance and all that kind of stuff. Um, and so that is me, basically. Even me now, that is exactly... I haven't changed at all. That's exactly me. But And Ellis is this total kind of, like, suave dreamboat. Um, I mean, he's got dark stuff underneath and layers and awful stuff has happened to him, but he's so confident in his skin and he's so... The thing with... Ellis is he is insistent upon himself he will take no prisoners he says I this is who I am if you don't like it that's your problem Um, and I wish I had that confidence even now you know um, as we were saying earlier there's kind of situations in life as a queer person where you keep your mouth shut because it's just safer to do it and I Um, And I always, after that kind of happens, after you've been in that situation, I always kind of beat myself up about it and say, you, you know, you owe it to yourself and your community to kind of stand up and say who you are. Um, And there, as we were saying earlier, it's probably sometimes not the wisest thing to do because you owe it to yourself to protect yourself as well. But at the same time, I kind of like, Ellis would never do that. He would always... Uh, insist upon who he is and would take no prisoners with it so I love the kind of like duality of kind of writing about myself as Dylan and about who I'd love to be as Ellis that's a really cool answer even though you cheated I really like the answer (laughs) sorry (laughs) (laughs) no it's fine actually I should say my favorite character from your book I think my favorite character I've forgotten his name now um is Dylan's best friend Mike yeah oh he was hilarious oh Mike is based on um, a friend of mine, my oldest friend from school called Trevor, and 
he not in his character, not in kind of like what he does in the story or anything like that or anything that's happened to him. Just that he is that kind of person who, and I think you're very lucky if you've got one or two people like this in your life who will. It doesn't matter what's happened to you. If it's two, three o'clock in the morning and you need them, they will always be there, you know, for you. And so that, in a sense, is my kind of tribute to my friend who's like that. Um, I think we are lucky if we have, you know, I've got one friend like that. And I think we're lucky if we do have one. I agree. I think that it's important to have a friend like that, especially if you're a person that has like, I mean, if you're going through grief or if you have like mental health issues, it's nice to have someone to even just text at 3 a.m. when you can't sleep. Absolutely. (laughs) And the last question I have for you is, what do you want readers to take away from reading your book? I think um, the central kind of message of the book is um, that, uh, so uh, Dylan actually says it at one point, he says, for acceptance, I, I kind of don't even like the words acceptance or tolerance because they should just be a given mm-hmm. now. I mean, we're in the 21st century, but for acceptance and tolerance to be worth anything at all, it must be 100%. And it so it can't break, it can't fracture, it can't be conditional because if it's any of those things, then as we said, like really at the beginning of the conversation, then it leaves uh, young people, especially in dangerous situations. And it must also be on the terms of that young person. It's not on the terms of the person offering the acceptance. It's the terms of the young person saying, this is who I am. Do you accept me? Um, And I think as kind of illustrated in the book, we see kind of like the community's response to Ellis. And Dylan says towards the end of the book, none of us accepted him. Even Dylan didn't for who he was. Um, and um, what seems like should just be a given thing to say, here I am, do you accept me? We think, oh yeah, of course we do. But as I say, I think um, very often we fall short of accepting people for you know who they are. So I think that's the central message I'd like to take away from book to try a bit harder in that respect. That's wonderful. Thank you so much for being on my podcast today. Uh, could it's you just could just let everybody know where they can find you on Twitter and Instagram? Yeah. So now I'm trying to remember my Twitter and Instagram handles. <laughs> <laughs> I'm. Uh, I think I'm W Hossie author on Twitter. I think I'm the same on Instagram. Yeah, you are. Uh, I am. <laughs> I'm so rubbish at social media. Um, but, uh, yeah, so uh, you will find me there. And, uh, you know, I, I, roughly about 5% of what I tweet is worth listening to. So, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and um, do you have any last words before the podcast ends? Well, uh, I think it's, well, first, first of all, thank you so much for having me on the podcast uh it's been absolutely lovely chatting and i think again the other message of uh, hideous beauty and the book coming out next year is uh one try to be you know kind to each other and also um especially for lgbtq people don't take any of our rights that were so hard you know won by as we was i was saying earlier with uh, the um you know, the Stonewall heroes and stuff and people throughout decades who fought for our rights, don't take them for granted. They're new rights, they're very young and they can be 
imperiled and taken away from this and diminished and diluted very, very easily. So um, don't, because a lot of the time you will hear people say, oh, you've got your rights now. Why don't you just shut up about them? But they're very young things, these rights, and they need protecting every day. So that would be, you know, my message really. Thank <laughs> you.